Acts 13 and 17, the two messages that Paul brought to two very different cultures. We saw uh, how Paul adapted what he said to relate to that, those different cultures, yet he did not change the core message. He brought that core message of the gospel uh, wisely and sensitively to those two cultures. And we just learned about this issue of culture, this issue of, of how societies, groups of people differ in how they live their lives, the different core beliefs, the different practices, the, the different literature, the different ways of communicating, the different occupations, and so forth and so on. This whole system of, of living uh, varies from group. And there's this reality of culture. So we looked at that in Scripture and how Paul adapted for the sake of the gospel. And then we took some time to think about our own culture that we live in, both our Christian culture and the culture around us, and to think a little bit about this issue. What I want to do today is continue in this mini-series on the gospel and culture, and I want to address the issue of our attitude about culture. I want to address from 1 Corinthians 9, and I believe an excellent passage to address this topic. I want to talk about our attitude. Our attitude towards culture is oh so important. And how we deal with culture has a big impact on us personally, how we walk out our faith and how we impact others. I remember a story I heard from a friend of mine. Now this friend was a very gifted uh, minister, uh, someone who discipled others and did a lot of reaching out and sharing the gospel with others. But he shared a story about his earlier days. He was part of a ministry that had a particular way of reaching people. It, it had a very narrow understanding of what the proper way to share the gospel was. And what they were required to do as part of this ministry, if you wanted to be involved, was uh, their outreach, their evangelism was, was focused on, centered on going door to door. So going door to door, I think it might have been on a, a campus or somewhere, or, a, uh, or military housing, I can't remember the particulars. It could have been neighborhood. And, and their whole the whole thrust of their reaching out was to go and knock on people's doors. Now, that can be work, and it can be a helpful way to reach people, but we know in our culture, um, just there, we, particularly nowadays, we are inundated by information. We're all so busy. The home is kind of a sacred place, so, so going to knock on someone's door is somewhat uh, pushy, uh, but it can work, you know, but we want to be sensitive to that. But also we know that there are certain groups that come door to door with certain agendas. So that there's, just, there's just cultural realities about that approach. So, yeah, you can do it that way. But there was more to the story, though. Um, they not only went door to door, but they insisted that all, all their young men involved wear white shirts, black pants, and black ties. Because they understood that as the proper way to, to dress and be respectful. Now, this is some years back. This isn't like five years ago. This is 25 years ago. Uh, but that's how they understood the proper way to represent Christ, was to dress this way. Uh, and that is a way to dress. There's nothing wrong with black pants, white shirt, and black tie. But that cultural understanding of how to convey respect to somebody is something that comes from 40, 50 years ago. Actually, uh, for those of us who were uh, in the 50s, were alive in the 50s, which is a diminishing group, but, um, but for those of us who were alive in the 50s, I'm just post-50, so in case you were wondering. Um, 
Thing, the styles and what was appropriate to wear was very different back then. So wearing a jacket was important. To not wear a jacket in certain situations was, was seen as inappropriate. I actually um, remember hearing another story about some youth workers in the 50s who went out to testify in different churches about what God was doing at their seminary. And during sharing, one of the young workers, now they all went back in the 50s, of course, with a tie on and a jacket on. During sharing, one of the guys took his jacket off at a church. And, and there was all this fallout in the church. It was almost as if, like, someone were to take their shirt off during sharing here. It was just, it, they were shocked because to take your jacket off was just, in that culture, uh, was communicating something inappropriate. So my friend, back to my friend's story, they were stuck in the 50s in their understanding of what was appropriate in representing Christ. And you can imagine what their success rate was like in doing this. Not very good. Because their cultural understanding of Christianity, the cultural things, they had, they had bought into a certain view, and, the, and I, I would say, this is often what happens, they had elevated a, a cultural practice that should be flexible to a, a, a scriptural practice. They really, under, they attached it to scripture, perhaps, and seen it as being respectful and all this, and, and so they were inflexible, and it impacted their ability. Why do I tell that story? Because... We deal with those realities all the time. And our attitude towards culture is really important. How we view whether to wear a black tie or not, wear a jacket or not, or what language or, or jargon we use, and, and on and on, has a huge impact on how we walk out our faith personally, as well as reaching out to others. And we need to think about these things. We need to be careful that, that we don't assume, what, as we can, and, and happens often, that the ways that we dress and talk, our taste in art and music, even politics, somehow drop straight from the pages of Scripture to us. And to change in those things means to violate Scripture. We need to be thoughtful and careful. And I would submit to you, we need to have the attitude we see in 1 Corinthians 9. So let's pray and take a look at this wonderful passage and, and let's pray that God would speak to us about our attitude towards culture and change us. The result being becoming more like Christ himself. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessings of culture. You've made us in your image. And there's all sorts of ways to express that. But Lord, we need your help to discern. Discern how we relate to these things. To discern our own hearts. And we thank you for your word. It's more than able to do this. It's living and active. And so we pray, oh God, as we look at your word today, would you speak to us? Would you, would you challenge us? Would you redirect us? And Lord, would you make specific application to us even as we listen, even as each one listens in their seat? Would you whisper to them the truth? Would you grant power? And would you lead them in how to apply these things, we pray? Would you be glorified through this all? We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 to 23, we'll read. Paul is in this section talking to the Corinthians because there are issues with their cultural practices, their preferences, and, and, and moral practices as well. And they, their attitude is off in these things. So he's bringing them the truth of the life in Christ to these things. And in this particular section, he talks about the issue we are concerned with. It says in verse 19, For though I am free from all, 
I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. God's word from 1 Corinthians 9. These five verses are a wonderful set of instructions and a wonderful way to communicate to us key attitudes towards culture. Really, in these verses, Paul talks first about uh, the, the what of our cultural attitude, of our attitude towards culture. Verse, verse 19 is addressing the what. Verses 20 to 22 really are talking about the how. How do you do this and how he does it in his particular case? And then he finishes with verse 23 is, is the why, the kind of the core reason. And, and through all this, through this what and how and why, he is really communicating a central point. If you have the notes, it's down below, I believe, in light gray. The central point of this passage, and that is it, that the, this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to sacrifice our cultural preferences. The gospel of Jesus Christ frees us to sacrifice our cultural preferences in order to reach people with the truth and love of Christ. That's the central point. And Paul gives us the what, the how, and the why. So let's dig in to these things. Verse 19, the what. Paul says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. This is a, a wonderful statement, a wonderful even paradox that Paul puts forward. And it's a paradox, a, a seemingly contradictory statement that runs through Scripture, runs through really all of the New Testament, I'd say even all of Scripture. This idea of being free, yet enslaved, both together. Paul is free from all. Though he is free from all, he's made himself a servant to all. Actually, uh, a stronger and, and more literal way to say it is, is I, have, I have enslaved myself to all. That's what Paul says. Though I'm free, I've enslaved myself. That's his attitude. That's his mindset. I would submit that's the mindset of Christ as well. But I want to talk about this idea of being free from all. What does Paul mean? What does he mean, I'm free from all? What does he mean by saying that? I'm free from all. Does, is he addressing uh, the, the idea that we're all free, you know, we're all free to pursue life, liberty, and, uh, and happiness, as our founders stated? Is that the freedom he's talking about? I mean, that, that may be a freedom that God grants us, but that's not the freedom Paul is addressing. He's talking about freedom... Freedom from the law and sin, essentially. This is uh, mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Jesus says in John chapter 8, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Later in that section, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The reality is, is that sin enslaves us. 
Sin enslaves us. Sin is this choice and attitude of doing life on our own terms. We want it our way. We want, we want to be in control of our lives. Practically, it means that it works itself out in things like disobeying the Ten Commandments, doing harm and evil, being jealous and bitter and greedy and impatient. It means that we ignore God and treat Him with ingratitude and even mockery. And we put ourselves in His place. We make ourselves the center of our universe. There's only one who truly deserves and can truly handle being the center of the universe. That's God Himself. Sin works itself out in these different ways of replacing God with ourselves, which is ridiculous, and, and doing evil to others. And the ironic thing about all this is that we think if we can make our own choices to do it our way, then we are free. True freedom is found in doing it our way, making our own choices, doing what we think is right. And Scripture says, no, no, that's slavery, because when you do that, you become enslaved to that sin. It controls you. You are darkened in your ability to see what is real and worthy and good. You put yourself in chains. The one who sins is not free. But God has not left us in that place of being imprisoned and enslaved by sin. He did not leave us alone. He had every right to. He could have just said, okay, you think that's freedom? Go ahead, be enslaved. But in his great mercy and love, flowing from who he is, he determined to rescue us from this slavery. And so he sent his son, Christ. God became a man and lived a perfect life of freedom and obedience and love for God and love for others. Fulfilled all righteousness, lived this perfect life, really, and then went to the cross. Went to the cross to offer up that perfect life in your place. To offer up that holy life for a life that's less than holy. To choose freely himself to become enslaved for you. To bear your sins on that cross. To, to bear the just penalty of sin. The holy wrath, the justice of God. God can be nothing but just. To bear that justice in himself on that cross and to die for your sins. So that you could be forgiven for your sins, and so that you could be accepted on his behalf, his righteous life, being a substitute for yours. And when you come to him in faith and say, Lord, I've messed up. I thought freedom was to do it my way, and I've learned that I've been enslaved. Rescue me. When you turn from sin and look to Jesus, what he's done in his death, and his resurrection that followed, you're forgiven, and the power of sin to enslave you is broken over your life. In that forgiveness, in that experience of new life, the power of sin is broken and you are now free in Christ. You have freedom. And to be free in Christ means that all your sins are paid for by Christ. And all the righteousness that God rightly requires of us is already fulfilled in Christ. He has done it. He is our substitute. And so for the believer, when you turn from your own sin and put your faith in Christ, there's no longer the penalty of sin nor the requirements of God in terms of the law hanging over your head. You don't walk around having to fulfill something to get into heaven. You're forgiven. You're free. You're free from all. That's the reality of for the Christian. 
You are free in Christ. And so Paul says, I'm free from all. I am free from all, yet he doesn't stay there. Because he could have said, well, I'm free. I'm forgiven. All my sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. And so I, I, you know, I can do what I want. Why should I be bothering with these stupid Corinthians? They're such a hassle all the time. I mean, problem after problem, it just doesn't stop. I'm so tired of Corinthians. I'm leaving. I'm going to go live on a Greek island the rest of my life and just enjoy myself. He, he could have said that in his freedom, but he didn't. Because when you receive the freedom you have in Christ, when you encounter the love of God in Christ, when he changes your heart, he does more than just free you. He fills you with his love. He fills you with freedom in him. He fills you with a a true security and standing in what you have in him. You know you're forgiven. You know you're accepted. You know your future is set. You know that he works all things for good, so you don't have to live for yourself and waste your time doing that anymore. And so now, in his love and in all this, there's this urge and this ability to enslave yourself to others. Isn't that an interesting paradox? You're free, yet you want to be enslaved. You want to be enslaved first and foremost to God himself. He has given himself for us. He was enslaved for us and bore our sins on the cross. And because of what he's done for us, now I want to do it for him. And I have everything in him. This is how the love of Christ works. This is how the life of Christ works in us. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it in the life of Christ himself. Think about Jesus. Jesus had everything in his relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, the three in one, forever had perfect fellowship, perfect satisfaction, perfect love. And yet, Christ came in that love to give himself for others. It's an interesting passage in John 13, uh, 3 and part of 4. Uh, if you know that story, it's the night before Jesus is to die. He knows what's coming. And he knows he's going to be betrayed. And he decides in that place, because of this heart of love, because this freedom as part of the Godhead that's full of the love of God and therefore wants to be enslaved, he, he decides to wash his disciples' feet. And he does that as an expression of who he is and of the love of God. He does that as an expression of this paradox of being free yet being enslaved. It says in chapter 13, verse 3 and 4, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He rose from supper to wash the feet, to do this demeaning task. This was a task for the lowliest of the low. It was... It was It was like washing toilets or something worse. Only the lowest servant would do that. It was demeaning, very demeaning. And yet Jesus chose to do this thing, to express to his disciples his love and his servitude towards them and to be an example, calling them, guys, if if you know what it is to belong to me, then you will go and do likewise. He rose to wash their feet and he rose to go to the cross to give his life for others. And this is the reality of the Christian's life. You are free from all, but you willingly and eagerly become enslaved to all in love. Out of love for God and out of love for them. Martin Luther said it this way, a Christian man, really a Christian man, not just man but woman, a Christian man is a most free Lord of all, 
Subject to, to none, a Christian man is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to all. That's the paradox that we live in, and that's Paul's paradox. That was his life. That's how he saw things, that he wanted to give his life for others. I think of the story of William Borden. Does anyone know William Borden? Ever hear of William Borden? Anyone have condensed milk in the refrigerator right now? You're thinking, what is he talking about? The Borden family invented condensed milk, and they invented kind of the food business, uh, or, or very significant in the food business in the late 1800s. And the family was wealthy, very wealthy. William Borden was the heir apparent of the Borden food business. Uh, he was a bright young man, and, and he came to know Christ through uh, a guy named R.A. Torrey, uh, who was a famous guy back then. And he graduated from high school, and his parents sent him on a trip around the world. And he had been impacted by the love and freedom he had in Christ. And so, as he went around the world, certainly I imagine he enjoyed himself, but he saw the misery of those throughout the world. I believe he went to Asia, Africa, and Europe, all around. And his heart was gripped with the need of those in the world. And he determined while he was on that trip that I want to give my life as a missionary, bringing the gospel to these peoples. And he wrote that to his family, and others heard about it. And one of his friends thought he was throwing his life away to become a missionary because he's this wealthy guy. You have all this stuff. And so Borden, in response to that, wrote in his Bible, no reserves. No reservations, no reserves. He went on uh, from that place to go to Yale. Uh, he was a great student there. He loved people. He discipled people. He evangelized. He started a Christian uh, organization at Yale, and uh, 1,000 of the 1,300 students in Yale were part of that group. He reached 1,000 of 1,300 students. He was part of starting a church. It's still there to this day. He was involved in ministry to the poor. He cared about widows and orphans, the disabled. He ministered to, uh, to alcoholics in New Haven. He founded the Yale Hope Mission, all as a college student. His missionary call led him to the Muslim Kansu people in China, and he fixed his eyes on this goal, and he passed up lucrative jobs and opportunities to go be trained as a missionary. And as he prepared, he wrote in his Bible, not just no reserves, but under that, no retreats. No retreats. He did went on to do graduate work at Princeton. Then he sailed for China on his way. He stopped in Egypt to study Arabic. And while he was there in Egypt, at the age of 25, he contracted spinal meningitis. And within a month, he died. News of his death came back to the States and was in every major newspaper in the country. His uh, biographer says, a wave of sorrow went round the world. Borden not only gave, gave his wealth, but himself. In a way so joyous and natural that it seemed a privilege rather than a sacrifice. Prior to his death, Borden had written two more words in his Bible. First, no reserves, no retreats. And the last thing he wrote, no regrets. This is a man who was gripped by his freedom and the love he had in Christ. And it was his joy and privilege to enslave himself, essentially, for the service of others, for the service of the kingdom of God. That's what happens when we get the gospel. That's what had happened in Paul's life. That's what had happened in William Borden's life. That's what has happened in our life and is happening in our life. When we get the gospel, when we understand the power and the, the wonder of the gospel, it frees us to sacrifice for others. It frees us to sacrifice our cultural preferences 
to reach people. And so that's what Paul does, and that's what Paul is talking about here. And he gets into the specifics under this section I call how, verses 20 and 22. First, he tells us to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. Same thing, the, the Jews were under the law. He's filling out how he did this. To the Jews, he became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So Paul, in an effort to reach Jewish people, lived as if under the law. Now, he was Jewish himself. He grew up Jewish. He was a strict keeper of the law. He knew the lifestyle. If you know the Mosaic law, the Mosaic law is, a, is not just a, a few rules here and there. It's a whole way of life. It speaks about really how to relate, how to worship God, how to relate to others, how, how to dress, how to eat, how to spend your holidays. It, it's a whole way of life. It's a, it's a whole culture. And it is actually so distinctive and so pervasive that it has effectively preserved the Jewish people uh, under God's sovereignty, preserved the Jewish people to this day. It's a whole way of life. And Paul grew up in that. But he came to know Christ as Savior, and he came to know him as Lord, and he understood in that that Christ had fulfilled the law. And that as one who had fulfilled the law, the law now had no obligation over him as, a, as having to keep the Mosaic law. So he was under no obligation to live according to that culture anymore. Yet he chose, when he was relating to Jewish people, to live under that culture, to live under that law. But it's interesting what he says here. He says, uh, though not being myself under the law. Isn't that, I think that's an interesting and important point. His heart was to reach the Jewish people. So he chose to live under the law, but his identity was not in one who lived in that culture. There was a bigger identity in his life as a Christian. His citizenship ultimately was in heaven, not on earth. So even though he was under the law, he understood himself not being under the law. I'm free in Christ. This is not how I see myself. But I live this way for the sake of others. That is so instructive for us. As we are called to live the same, as we are called and freed in, in the gospel to live, to sacrifice for others, we do so to serve them, but that's not our identity, whether we wear a jacket or a tie or whatever. Those are things that are not our identity. Our identity is in Christ. Yet we do what we can to reach those who don't have Christ or are just beginning in Christ. He goes on to say that it's not just the Jews that he does this for. This is really a, a wild statement. He also does this for the Gentiles. He says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. This would be the Gentiles in, in their culture, mostly Greeks and Romans. He lives as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So when he was around people who were of the Greek or Roman culture, he lived like them. He ate the food they ate. He didn't stay kosher. He perhaps dressed like they did. They all kind of dressed the same, more or less, but he maybe talked like them. Maybe Paul went to the gym and went to the public baths and even attended the theater, too. I, we don't know that, but that was part of that culture of the day. If he's saying that he lived as those not under law, I think it would mean that he did those things. But then again, he puts in this qualifier, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So his identity is not being as one outside the law. His identity is as a Christian. There's, there are bounds to what I do. I live under the law of Christ. Uh, by the way, the New Testament 
has, I believe, twice as many commands as the Old Testament. So the New Testament is full of the law, but it's the law of Christ. It's propelled by freedom. It's in freedom, propelled by the power of the Holy Spirit. We relate to it differently than those who mistakenly relate to the Old Testament law. So Paul still lives under the law of Christ, but, but he's outside the law, and so he's seeking to reach them. He adjusts his cultural practices to win them. Then he adds one final category, the weak. He's been talking in this section in Scripture about the weak. These are people who have certain scruples, certain convictions about what's right and what's wrong. They have made black and white out of what is gray. That's a, a concise way to put it. And you can read the longer discussion in this section. It had to do particularly in this section with certain foods. To live in that culture of the day, if you wanted to have a hamburger, uh, there's only one way you could get it really, and it was through the temple system, the, the Greek temple system. So pretty much all meat was previously sacrificed to the Greek god or divinity of some sort. And so there were some who felt, uh, because they came from that background and maybe they fully participated in those sacrifices to those foreign gods, for them to eat meat was to kind of revert. And yet it, it didn't matter. It was just meat, right? There's no, there's no special thing that happens to the meat. There's no, like, demon inhabiting the meat, you know, when it goes through that. Uh, but they did not feel free to do that. And so Paul is saying to the Corinthians, guys, these are the weak. You're to care for them. And Paul is saying, for, for me, I... I go along with that stuff. If I'm at their house, I don't ask for a hamburger or whatever else it is. And, and we can make this application to other things. Uh, the weak, there are those around us who have uh, maybe particular experiences in the past with alcohol, um, where alcohol for them represents the old way, the old lifestyle. And so you don't, you know, chug a beer in front of them. You're free. Scripture's free on this. You don't do that. Tobacco would be another area. Some tobaccos associated with an old way of life, so you, you don't smoke, light up your cigar, but you're free. The scripture doesn't say you, you can't do these things. We're to do all things for the glory of God, certainly, but there's freedom. Perhaps even how one dresses. These are areas that are gray. The Bible doesn't say you have to dress a certain way. But maybe people are weak, so we consider them particularly those who are young believers. Sometimes there are scruples that are there because of legalism. That's another, another topic to talk about. Even there, we want to be careful and loving, don't we? And gently help them be free. So this is how Paul lived. This is what he did. He was compelled by his life in Christ, compelled by love for others. And so he sacrificed his cultural preferences to serve others, to reach them, to touch their lives, to remove any stumbling blocks, to identify with their life, to identify with, with their worldview even, and to find the good in it, to even enjoy that and ultimately use all that to point them to Christ and to help them understand how to live for Christ in their particular culture. That was, that was how he did it. That was how he approached things. The gospel had changed him and had led him to this. The question for us today is, how about us? How does this impact our lives? Is this our hearts? We all have preferences. We all have cultural preferences. We all have a certain way of living. We have certain music that we like. We have certain ways of dressing that we like. We have certain vocabulary. We have certain friends, certain music, certain 
sports teams that will remain unnamed. We have certain political activities. And if I'm not mistaken, in my understanding of Paul and what he's calling the Corinthians to, and this isn't just for the Corinthians, by the way. This is God's word. It's for us. Paul says at the end of this whole section, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So he's, he's not just saying, hey guys, this is what I do. It's you know, optional. No, he's saying, you guys, do it. And God, therefore, I believe is saying to us, you guys, do it. By grace, in the power of the gospel, but nevertheless, to do it. So I think all these things should be on the table. Are they on the table for you? Or do you hold some of these things like they dropped out of the pages of Scripture? Do you evaluate others by these things? If we get the gospel, how free and forgiven and loved we are in Christ, we'll be eager to put these things on the table. That we might negotiate what works best to reach others. And if we get the gospel, we'll be willing to just push them off the table. I'll, I'll dress differently if that's what it takes to touch someone's life. I will change my lifestyle, my schedule, where I live, what car I drive, how I talk, whatever is necessary for the sake of the gospel in other people's lives. Let me just throw some scenarios out there, some more serious than others. If you're a native New Englander, maybe if you're not, you love your Boston sports teams, right? Here's one that's going to cut deep. Um, Say God leads you to be part of a church, church, a church or a church plant in the Bronx. And you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Would you be willing to root for the Yankees? Hard to say. Hard to say. Would you be willing to do that? <laughs> Yeah, it would hurt. It sure would. It would take the power of God for sure. But that's the sort of thing that we're called to. How about this one? God calls you to be part of a church plant in an area that's either, say, urban or rural. And you have a particular political affinity that does not fit in in either of those cases. Generally speaking, urban's going to be more liberal democratic. Rural's going to be more conservative Republican or libertarian or whatever it might be. You have politi certain political affinities. Now, I'm not saying just don't think and don't be thoughtful. Don't, I'm not saying don't have ideas. But would you be willing to give up your party affiliation for the sake of the gospel in those places? And maybe, if you're free, even join their party. Doesn't mean you agree with everything. Would you do that? That's the sort of stuff I think Paul's getting at. This is sort of the area that hits us. These are where it's difficult. How about this one? You're seeking to reach 20 and 30-year-olds, teens, and you recognize the culture is really different than yours. You're a boomer or whatever, or an Xer, Generation X. Um, and you realize it's just a different culture. They have different values. For them, uh, environmentalism is a big deal. Um, they really think that caring for the earth should be one of the major priorities of humanity. Now, I think Scripture would lead us that way too, we're to care. But it, for you, maybe it's just not a big, big deal. For me, it, you know, it's not something that beats in my heart necessarily. But you want to reach these people, and then in their, in their mind, you know, being green is, is a virtue. 
And to do certain things is really just a slap in the face to those who love being green. I just learned last week that styrofoam, other week, styrofoam cups are a no-no, by the way. You know that? I didn't know that. You just, you're just saying, what are you, stupid? <laughs> I, I didn't know. I just thought, you know. And, um, so that's somewhat trivial. Would you be willing to ditch styrofoam cups? But, but even more than that, would you be able to, would you be interested? Would you be able to flex and start maybe wearing your shirt on the outside instead of tucking it in? Or not wearing a jacket in church? And I love jackets in church, and you, you are encouraged to wear them here. Or, or, or maybe getting more involved in social justice issues. Now, the church is called to social justice no matter what culture you are. But for this culture, it's a big issue. To relate to them as a church and not be addressing social justice is just like, how, how can you do that? They're more sensitive to that area. Would you be willing to change those things for the sake of the gospel? We could go on and on. There are all sorts of scenarios, and you have a particular scenario that applies to your life, I know, where you are. And a question with that I would ask is, are you spending too much time in your Christian subculture to even know what those issues are around you? You know, there's this tendency that happens, and I understand it, and I've, and I've imbibed in it too. There's this tendency when you, when you come to Christ, at that point you have lots of friends who don't yet know Christ all around you. But as you grow in Christ, you start to build relationships with other believers, and you start to plug into a church. And there's this natural tendency to start building your friends exclusively in the church and to start losing your friends outside the church. And over time, it's been shown that, that Christians will end up losing virtually all of their relationships outside the, the church, so the church broadly speaking, not just local, but, but broadly. And you live in this little bubble, this Christian subculture, and you develop your own lingo. I can remember talking to uh, my brother at one point, and, and, I, and I was using the lingo, uh, and I said something, I was talking about somebody, I said, oh boy, that guy's a, he's a real servant. Uh, my brother's like, what? what? He's a servant? I mean, what are you talking about? And I could have been more sensitive and said he's very helpful. You know, that would be, <laughs> he's just a guy that loves to help others. There were other ways to say it, but I can, can remember that. Just the lingo had, had, was what I, how I talked. And so what's some of the lingo that you use that does not connect? I got saved 10 years ago. What are you talking about? Got saved from what? Uh, I mean, that's a fine word, but maybe you need to describe it. Maybe a better way would be to say, you know, Christ impacted my life that changed me forever about 10 years ago. There's all sorts of things. And the question is, are you so immersed in your Christian subculture that you're not even sure what things you need to sacrifice? And, and what, what can you do about this? Well, let, let me give you something that is encouraging me and it's a goal for me because I've done this. I recognize that my friendships with those who don't yet know Christ uh, are sparse. And here's what, I'm, what I have in my own mind and, I, and I, what I would like maybe to have for our church as just a rule of thumb. I call it the two-hour rule of thumb. Uh, and, in, and this is just one way. There's lots of other ways to do this. But the two-hour rule of thumb. We as a church talk about the priority from Scripture of being uh, disciples. That means that we live a lifestyle of worship, walking together with the Lord with others, and witnessing. That's on the back wall right there, right? Worshiping, walking, and witnessing. And I think a good way to think about uh, how to walk this out is just... Spend two hours in each category each week. Now, worship category, you got down because you're here. Two hours, you're here, right? You're worshiping, 
You got that. Walking, involved with a small group or involved with some ministry in the church, to, to walk together. That's really important. I don't want to diminish that. Let's not neglect those two to do the other. That would be foolish. Two hours there. But how about the two hours in witnessing? Two hours a week hanging out with those that don't know Christ. Or two hours a week in a ministry to those who need Christ. I know some of you are doing that. I'm encouraged by that. But I would like to have that rule of thumb be a common practice of this. And I think it gives us an easy way to start. If you're not doing two hours, just what can I do? Two hours a week. Maybe just once, one night a week I'm inviting friends over who, who don't know Christ. Or maybe I'm getting involved with the, the, uh, the food ministry at GAR Park. Or, or maybe I'm getting involved with Alpha. There's all sorts of things to do. Just two hours a week. I think as we do something like that, we will find ourselves living more and more like Paul and learning how to serve others. And we'll learn in that place what things we need to jettison culturally so that we can reach them and how to identify with them, how to identify with their culture, how to put away the barriers and connect with them and enter into their world, hear their questions, hear their frame of mind, adapt what's good, Identify with that and through that lead them to Christ and then even help them understand now in your world what does it mean to walk with Christ? We don't want to be a church that to walk with Christ means we all look the same and we dress the same and we talk the same. I hope that, that we have multi-cultures here. Now we're, we're going to have English. We'll have to choose a language. We'll be English speakers. But may God give us a church full of people who dress all different ways and talk all different ways, and have different cultures, and each one of them learning in their culture what it means to walk with Christ, to worship, to walk, to witness to others. If the band could come up as we close. Finally, Paul gives us the why, verse 23. And this has been woven throughout as well. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. For the sake of the gospel, to share with them in its blessings. This is a motivation for Paul. This is the why. This is why he's willing to lay down his cultural preferences and, and adapt to others so that he might reach them for the sake of the work of the gospel. The gospel has changed his life. The gospel is God's glorious plan to, to rescue people, to magnify his name, to bring restoration, to deal with the issue of sin. To create, it, to create through the gospel uh, eternity in heaven and the new earth to enjoy together. So the work of the gospel, it's for the work of the gospel. And then Paul says that I may share with them in its blessings. You see, when you get the love of God, you always want to share it. When you've been touched by this freedom in Christ, it always results in a desire that others enter into it. Shared joy is a completed joy. And unshared joy is an incomplete joy. And so we see this in Paul. We see this throughout Scripture. I, I love 1 John chapter 1. It's John's writing. He says, that, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And then he says, we write this to make your joy, our joy, complete. He wants to, he knows he's encountered Christ, and he wants others to, to know that. And that brings joy for all. This is Paul's heart. He wants to share, and I, one closing illustration. I think of it this way. Uh, just imagine, uh, well, actually, maybe some of you have coached sports for kids, Little League, things like that. And just say you're a Little League coach, and, and you have a, a team, and it's not always easy to be a coach because you have to 
put up with little kids who don't know what they're doing, but you put the time in just to teach them how to throw the ball, how to catch the ball, how to bat, how to play a position, um, how to run plays, how to field the ball. And you teach them, and you put that time in, and, you, and not only do you teach them, but you impart a love for the game to them. And it's hard work. But say it's 20 years later, and some of those kids are actually playing Major League Ball. And they say, you know what, it was coach so-and-so who had an impact on my life and got me on this road, and now I'm playing Major League Ball. How would that make you feel? You'd be like, man, it was worth it all. I love this. That's Paul's heart. Because when you bring the gospel to somebody, they always make the major leagues. And he wanted to share what he had in Christ and see a result that they all would be with him on that final day. He wanted to share with them what he had. This heart of love had, had changed him, and it made him eager to do whatever it takes to adapt culture, to be flexible, to reach people for that purpose. If you're a believer, I know that's on your heart too. So let's think with Paul how, how to adapt, how to flex for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of sharing other, with others. As we go to song, I just want you to consider, is there one thing that you can do to take a step in this direction? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul and ultimately of you, Lord Jesus. We ask you by the power of the Holy Spirit, make us like Christ. That we might do whatever it takes, we would gladly and willingly and wisely sacrifice cultural preferences to reach others for your sake, for their sake, for your glory we pray. Amen.